0: There is absolutely no place at all in any sutta where the Buddha says that any god or deity plays any role in human happiness or the important human affairs. He doesn't say that gods do or do not exist, it's not important for him, because he views that the fundamentally important issues that face human beings are the ways we Make our choices and use our own minds rather than uh, the other most of the spiritual practices of the Buddha's day were in some way or another uh, not only theistic but sacrificial. They sacrificed animals, they had all these kinds of rituals to appease God. So there was a sense that in order to be happy or to have a meaningful life, you had to appease some transmundane entity, some deity, and none of that was of any interest um, to the Buddha. So you could, without being incorrect, say that Buddhist practice is essentially an atheist practice in the sense that there is no God that's positive of being important. You can believe in God all you want, it doesn't matter. You know that's not an issue. No Buddhist will ever say that's wrong or right. Uh, the Buddha was not even a religious figure. He was essentially a what we would call at best a kind of proto-psychologist. His sole aim was to reduce human suffering. He had no interest and never and refused to answer any questions about why the universe exists or what will happen to it in the distant future. While the Buddha refused to answer that, I can tell you what will happen. Uh, (laughs) Eventually the sun will explode and um, it will essentially incinerate the earth in about four billion years. Uh, And around the same time, the Andromeda galaxy will collide with us and everything will be annihilated. And then... Billions of years beyond that, the universe will essentially, because it's expanding at an ever-consistent rate, will be pulled apart and everything will be ended. So, (laughs) you might as well be happy now. Uh, so (laughs) uh, So, the Buddha says that really the important thing is one, uh, how we uh, use our minds. It's our, he believed that human suffering, as we'll see, uh, is largely a matter of um, how we act and think and behave. It's not caused by gods or external forces. And no, the Buddha did not pin most of our unhappiness or happiness or any of the difficult events in our life on past lives. That's a reading that's been added on. So, what did the Buddha teach? About uh, three weeks after he attained enlightenment, he goes off and he finds the five practitioners that he knew and he gives a talk. Called the Dhamma Chakra Pavatana, which is setting the path in motion or the wheel of the Dharma in motion. And uh, he basically gives the fundamentals of the practice right there and then. And um, it said that all the people he gave this talk to became enlightened, so I fully expect that of you tonight. <laughs> um, so, uh, the teachings is broken down into a causal worldview, The Buddha believes that there are causes and effects. We take actions which are causes and they create effects in our life. And that's the underlying motor of human suffering. So, as you'll notice, the Buddha's core teaching, which is known colloquially as the Four Noble Truths, is a basic, very straightforward saying that there's a basic set of cause and effect and how we use our mind and how we cause suffering in our life. So the Four Noble Truths is actually taken from the Pali word and that literally means, uh, if, we, if it was really well translated, it would mean something like the core underlying truths of the mind, and reality itself. But that doesn't have the same ring as the Four Noble Truths. So it's been known as that. But it's really a a set of four principles. So the first Noble Truth is Dukkha. And Dukkha is the early Pali word for all the crap about life. Essentially, the suffering, the agitation, the affliction, the distress the stuff we really, that makes us uncomfortable. And the first noble truth, the Buddha says, uh, he dumps the bad news straightforwardly into our laps. And he says, in life, there's a lot of dukkha. (laughs) Now, if that's news to you, I would be surprised. Because by the time anybody rolls into a Buddhist center, hopefully you've had a little bit of stress and suffering, You've had your fair share of heartbreak or disappointment. You're not coming in on a winning streak, most of us. (laughs) Maybe you are. I mean, maybe you're just like people who said, "Yeah, well, last year's intention was working out, and boy, look at that—that worked out well." This year it's Buddhism, but and that would be fun. (laughs) But I suspect that a few of you are coming in because you've had your fair expression experiences of stress, and emotional struggles, and uh, emotional wounds, and, and challenges. So you know that in life there's dukkha. And the Buddha starts his spiritual path by saying we have to look at that, not avoid it, not try to repress it, not try to look away, not try to deny it, not try to minimize it, not try to navigate around it. But we have to start the practice of looking at it and understanding it, and that is in many ways, separates already the Buddha from so many spiritual teachers. He starts off by saying, there's a problem, and the real thing we're going to do first is we're going to acknowledge it, and we're not going to uh, try to minimize it or you know, try to paste on a smile and keep pushing through. We're going to actually investigate why there's so much suffering in life. And so he says the first thing that's important to do is that we talk about what kind of suffering there is. So he gives a list, and the list is basically the common sufferings in life are sickness, death, old age, not getting what we want, losing what is dear to us, such as people, animals, things we love, and being stuck with people we don't love, and finally, uh, clinging desperately to things that are not meant to last. Uh, You know, clinging to sensual experiences that don't last. Boy, that hit of crack was great. (laughs) Why does it have to go away after 20 minutes or however long it lasts? So, um, I did my share of drugs, but I never did crack, so I don't know. I'm guessing 20 minutes. Um, So... (laughs) 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 <laughs> it, it's good to be backed up uh, here. So, um, breaking that down, the Buddha says there's really, you can break down that list into three types of dukkha. The first type is inevitable. It's dukkha-dukkha. He clearly ran out of ideas. Uh, Dukkha Ducca is the unavoidable, what's known as first arrow pains of life. There's nothing you can do about it. Um, They happen to everyone. Things like pain, aging, sickness, death, and all of us at times lose important people in our lives. So, there's nothing we can do about these pains, these both physiological and emotional pains that cut right to the core of the human experience. And the Buddha's uh, message for these kinds of um, pains is that our job is to feel them, to nurture, take care of ourselves, to express the emotional pains with others, but to not try to in any way numb or try to avoid these pains, or to resist them to just be, uh, to fully acknowledge and be with the emotional pains of life. That doesn't mean if you can alleviate the physical pains uh, appropriately, of course you do that, but the emotional pains we're meant to actually face. Now, there's two kinds of dukkha that are entirely avoidable. There's Dukkha Viparinama and Dukkha Sankhara. And these actually wind up taking up the bulk of our suffering. Dukkha Viparinama is the external suffering associated with the fact that we want things to last and provide us with lasting security and happiness, and the bulk of the things we rely on for that fail, because they're... Uh, Well, there are two things. One, they're either ephemeral, they don't last, or two, because we habituate to them. For example, you're tired of your job and you might dream of going to that warm vacation somewhere uh, beautiful, and so you finally scratch and claw your way to the vacation, and then you get on the vacation, and then the vacation starts... You know that the vacation isn't going to last forever, and you start emotionally counting down Oh. I've been here one day in 13 days. I have to go back. <laughs> so there's that underpinning, that knowledge that the things that we cling to, the uh, sensual pleasures, the food, our favorite TV show, the uh, connection with people we love, the the, uh, the the things that we gravitate towards, the awards, the achievements. You know, you write a great book, and then eventually it's done. And then what are you going to do? You've got to write another one. There's a ephemerality. But suppose your vacation didn't end. Suppose it went on forever. Well, then it would not be a vacation. Then it would be your life again. And very quickly you do the second thing which kills off most of the transient uh, or, or things that aren't meant to give us lasting happiness, which is you do something called habituate. You get used to things Anything that produces a dopamine rush, if you do it enough, it won't produce a dopamine rush anymore it won't produce pleasure anymore. Uh, anybody who's ever met someone that you're really deeply in love with and you might be in that relationship for the rest of your life, but the early neural pleasures associated with connecting with someone and falling in love don't last the dopamine. Uh, drops away. And then what sustains a relationship, if the relationship sustains, is love. But love is not consuming or getting the kind of thrill or boosts that the early relationship gives. The human brain is set up to reward novelty, not set up to reward familiarity as much as it does novelty. That's because we're largely still living in the brains that we're Uh, essentially coded to survive the way the world was 100,000 years ago. The brain hasn't caught up with our current lifestyle, so it still perceives as if the most important thing to do is to reward us for achieving any kind of new survival advantage. The brain is not set up to reward us for settling in to a nice thing and appreciating it. We have to cultivate that skill. So transience and habituation tends to undermine the food, the careers boosts, the achievements, the awards, the reputations, the posts that get 200 likes, uh, uh, the popularity, the notoriety. It all becomes either, it goes away or it becomes familiar and it stops producing any of the rewards that we want it to. And we're stuck back in the default setting of the mind. And what is the default setting of the mind? The mind is still set up to perceive the world as if we are prey. We, uh, 100,000 years ago, were just as often eaten as we ate. We were attacked by packs of hyenas, packs of wild dogs, packs of bears. People died in all kinds of gruesome ways. And unfortunately, the brain still hasn't caught up with our current condition, so we live in default mind states that are anxious. And so we're constantly looking for an advantage and living as if we're under threat. The last kind of dukkha is dukkha sankara, which is the stress that's caused by thinking. We live in left-hemispheric dominant minds, where we tend to repress the feelings that convey emotions to us, which are the product of the right hemisphere, which is largely unconscious. So we tend to, whenever we have negative feelings, we tend to try to repress those negative feelings by thinking, figuring out, solving life. Why did this bad thing happen? Oh, if I just think about it enough, I'll achieve the immunity from suffering. I'll never have to experience any suffering again. I'll get that, uh, that uh, what people call the inoculation from pain. It, I'll never have to suffer again. So when people go through breakups, the first thing they do is they say, that will teach me forever dating a Canadian or something. <laughs> <laughs> Stupid, because we're trying to latch onto an abstract rule or principle And that abstract rule or principle serves two purposes. One, the left hemisphere is an inordinately optimistic lobe hemisphere. Uh, It likes to believe it can solve and fix everything. And the more you're caught up in your thoughts, the less you feel the emotional pain that the body and the emotional mind outside of thinking is experiencing. So we learn to, as Winnicott say, rely on our thinking to provide a false self to protect us. And oh, if only it worked. But the problem is it doesn't. When we live in our thoughts, when we live in fantasies, preoccupations, stories about how I should have done something different, when we live in all of that uh, thinking, one, the emotional pain that it's masking doesn't go away. The emotional pain actually is simply repressed stored in the right orbital frontal and ever other regions of the right hemisphere that store actively, unprocessed, painful emotions. So, the things we don't feel, they remain very, very uh, active, like a dormant volcano that's waiting to erupt. And in our lives, if we stumble across something that reminds us of the repressed emotions that we didn't take the time to feel, those dormant emotions will rise up. So at some point in your life, you've probably gone through a short relationship that didn't work out, and when it didn't work out, you started to feel inordinately sad or dispirited or frustrated because it activated earlier times where you felt rejected or abandoned. Maybe that didn't happen with relationships. Maybe it happened with somebody who's critical at work, somebody says something mildly critical, and you take it like an onslaught to your very existence because it reminds you of all the wounding critical remarks from childhood that we received from peers or teachers or whatever, all the unprocessed experiences. So repression doesn't help us at all. It simply pushes down painful, negative, but important emotions that are there to help us that are there to help us say, I've just been through something wounding and I need attention. It's the way the... uh, The right hemisphere is responsible for maintaining secure relationships in our life. And when we have emotional pain, it's simply telling us that we've had a relational wound happen. And we don't pay attention to it. We live in our thoughts. We're ignoring what some people refer to as the inner child. We're repressing the most important Uh, emotional content. So these are the three types, and when we try to repress our emotions and our feelings with thinking, the thinking becomes more and more and more and more and more obsessive. The more emotional pain there is, the more we experience insomnia, we experience fixations, we experience obsessions. We can't stop the thinking, the more it has to repress. So eventually, the job is to, of course, uh, relieve this fixation. Now, the second noble truth, Samudaya, is that there is a cause for these three kinds of suffering that we have, the, especially the two sufferings of change and disappointment and the suffering of obsessive thinking. And that are the, the three kinds of causes uh, known as samudaya. The causes of dukkha or suffering are one, kama tanha, which is the craving to believe that we can somehow replace emotional pain with things of the world, that if I only find the right thing, the right sensation, the right relationship, the right job, the right... Career. if I only achieve the perfect creative event in my life, if I only do the perfect thing, then I'll never have to feel this way again. I'll never have to feel anxious, lonely, disappointed, disconnected, sad, if I only could just get that thing. So the first thing is there's this deeply embedded human belief that is encoded deeply in the brain via the dopamine reward system that there's something out there that uh, if I can just get I, I won't have to suffer anymore and a lot of and sometimes in life we have that experience I know the first time that I uh, did uh, drugs when I was a neurotic 13 year old I was yes. Sign me up for this for the rest of my life. Thank you very, very much. I'll be good. I'm good. Just, you know, I had no idea that pot would not make me feel that way the second time or any time after that I smoked it. it was, I, I spent the rest of uh, my teenage years stuck in a room with a, lunch, with a blind down, watching McLeod, which you're too young to know. It was a show about a policeman on a horse. Trust me, the shows in the late 70s suck. Anyway, uh, <laughs> so we're deeply encoded to believe that there's something out there that will fix us and solve us, that we're incomplete, and we need just this thing, and this thing is external, and if we had this thing, we would never have to suffer again, and that's kamatana. And boy, does that set us up for a lot of suffering, because it, it, uh, it... it Creates the message that right now, as I am, I don't deserve or qualify for peace of mind. There's something I need to get. And that sabotages us. There's nothing missing. The only thing wrong is that we believe there's something missing. So, Bawa Tana is the craving to achieve another personality, another state of being. When I get my diploma, when I finally. Uh, write my masterpiece when I, or paint my masterpiece when I um, attain that wisdom that I'm sure is tucked somewhere secretively in Buddhism or some spiritual path or some Hindu Swami. There's something I've got to gain in, in a future state I'll get. And again, that creates the belief that there's something now we cannot be happy. We have to wait until some future state before we deserve to have peace of mind, before we can attain any quality of security or ease or well-being. So all of these deeply embedded beliefs that cause suffering also push us away from the belief that in any way we qualify right now and here as we are for peace of mind. And the last quality that causes so much suffering is uh, Vibhava, which is the belief that if everything else fails, that the best thing to do is to numb ourselves from pain rather than feel pain, rather than turn towards it and learn from it, learn to hold it, learn to be with the the times when we feel our emotional wounds. Vibhavatana is the belief that there must be a way to get rid of or numb uh, at all costs, some of the most painful moments in life, for instance, the breakups, the heartaches, the losses, just give me the heroin, or give me the anything that will make it all go away. So fortunately, the Buddha didn't stop there, or it would be a fuck of a depressing spiritual path. So thankfully, there are two more. <coughs> uh, there are Niroda, which is the cessation of suffering. The Buddha says, just as there's suffering, there's also an end to most of our needless suffering. Yes, there's the inevitable suffering of dukkha-dukkha. We all still have pain. We all still know old age, sickness, death. But there's also many, 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 many times in life we can attain a really indescribable transcendent Kind of tranquility and joy and well-being that is beyond our our wildest imagination. That this state is available to all beings, and the only thing you have to do is rewire your brain. But it's actually uh, a little bit easier than I made that sound. Um, one, we have the capability of achieving this, and two there's two ways we get this path started. One is we let go of the idea that there's something we need to get, achieve, that there's something outside of ourselves, and instead we we start about the practice of letting go of the addictive striving towards something external or something in the future that we believe will fix us or make happiness possible. Now, that doesn't mean we... We have to live without ambitions or we can't make any plans. But it means letting go of the belief that that's where our true happiness or where our salvation from suffering lies. There's nothing wrong with wanting to get a degree, write a great book, make a movie, record a great album, have a great relationship, be, start a business. There's nothing wrong with any of that. But if deep down inside we believe that'll be the thing that fix me or makes me so that I never get anxious or miserable or that I'll never fear lonely, feel lonely again, then we're really, really setting ourselves up for a fall because none of those things will meaningfully address the core emotional experiences that cause human suffering. So we start out by transforming the way we relate to our ambitions and our goals, we let go of the craving, which is the belief that this is the most important thing. We pay due diligence to it. When you're working, you work. When you're creative, you're creative. When you're with the person you love, you connect and you open. And But we really... No, deep down inside, that if we're trying to accumulate or achieve anything as a solution for life, that's not where true peace of mind lies. So we refrain or we, we look at all of our endeavors with a different degree of attachment or a different degree of what I should say is uh, in de- identification and fierceness. There's a detached quality that knows, okay, this is fun, but this won't last, or this won't be the thing. And the good news is that if we don't get distraught by the dramas or the setbacks in our art, our careers, our workplaces, our families, where there's setbacks, then we can still um, do the things, turn towards the, with energy, the places that do create that do offer lasting peace of mind. And that's the fourth noble truth, that there are unconditional sources of human happiness available to us. The first, or the most, the two most important, are one, the human brain is deeply wired to uh, pro-social behaviors. In our past, Uh, Human beings that acted incredibly selfishly, who only thought of themselves, who only acted for their own benefit, who accumulated as much as they possibly could, would have actually triggered the deeply embedded shame circuits that run all throughout the brain, which have been discovered by a team of Japanese neuroscientists that show transculturally we all have shame circuits that were wired to encourage us to stay connected and work in altruistic ways. If you think about it, our ancestors, the ones who acted selfishly, would have been expelled from the tribe and would not have been safe when the packs of hyenas came around in in winter and were hungry. On the other hand, our our ancestors who were like, oh, I have an extra coat made out of whatever our poor fathers, mothers, more made coats out of. Here, my friend, you look co- cold, you have a coat. The ancestors that did that bonded well. The ones that bonded well would have had strong social ties. When the hyenas came around, we would have, they would have been socially deeply connected and safe. The thing that makes human beings safe and makes us the dominant species is the fact that we bond together so well. That is our sole survival advantage, not our intellect. Our ability to connect and form deeply interwoven, emotionally sustainable tribal relationships is what gave human beings our advantage that allowed us to survive against incredibly adverse environmental and ecosystemic challenges. So, the All of this wiring, the pro-social and the wiring that causes suffering has been uh, not only well documented by the neuroscientist Lieberman, Matthew Lieberman, but it's shown that it's deeply wired in the right hemisphere, which is meant to say to us, hey, I'm ashamed, I'm guilty, or I'm happy and I feel pride of my actions via our feelings It's what creates positive emotions when we act in altruistic, connected, kind, generous, grateful ways. So, the first key of right action is to make sure that our underlying motivations are not simply self-centered and fixated on our own happiness to some degree in our work, in our life, in our relationships, that there's always some recognition of the impact that our actions have on others. If we even have that basic intention, the Buddha said, to not cause harm, we're wired up to feel positive emotions in the future. And there's been lots of studies by the the positive psychologists led by uh, Seligman in the 80s and 90s that documented that people who do pro-social actions by far and away tend to be the happiest, the ones who have strong social connections based on some form of care <coughs> volunteerism, connection or just not causing feeling a sense of pride about how we uh, make our living and how we interact with others the second key is of course the way we relate to our eternal experience rather than living in balanced lives, where we live in the dukkha sankara of trying to think, figure out, and solve every experience intellectually through abstract representational thought, we develop a balanced awareness where we start to turn first to what is happening in the breath, the body, the feeling states, the mind states outside of our thinking, how the mind focuses its attention When you do that, you're bringing awareness back to your right hemisphere. When you pay attention to the messaging of your right hemisphere, it will rebalance you towards sustainable happiness. Your left hemisphere is deeply embedded in the dopamine reward cycle. It's the part that gets addicted. It's the part that gets caught up in uh, accumulating. It's the part that causes so much of the needless suffering in our lives. While the right hemisphere, ironically, holds so much of our negative emotions, if we pay attention to it through its messaging in the intuitional body, gut feelings, the emotional mind, we actually tend to find, one, that we can hold all of our emotional experience. We can nurture the emotional wounds by creating a safe container where we can, instead of repressing sadness, loneliness, anger, fear melancholy, despair, uh, anxiety. We can actually view all of these as messages from the emotional mind seeking our attention. And when we do that, we actually create a form of lasting peace of mind that's impossible to be conveyed. Additionally, we then learn by the way we relate to the breath and the body and the sensations to actually use those Underlying sensations to create tranquility just in the way we breathe, just in the way we pay attention to our internal experience. Finally, the third major quality is just to bear in mind when we get caught up in thinking, to switch the thinking from the idea that if I only could fix this drama, attain that thing, grab hold, achieve this, to remind ourselves of the key message that there's nothing missing from our lives that we need to be happy. There's nothing missing. So I thank you for listening. I hope there was something worth pondering somewhere in there. And now I'm going to turn off this.